Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're able to join us today. Our show today is on um, dementia with the intellectually disabled, and I think it's a topic that really isn't spoken about but affects so many people. And so I'm very excited to have our guests on today. But before I introduce them, I just want to introduce and tell you a little bit more about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. For those of you that are new to our show, um, basically I created the show after dealing with my mom's disease for over 30 years. She's had memory loss. She's now in her end stages. And I just found that there wasn't a platform where people could really engage and talk and and learn new strategies of what is working and what isn't. So our goal here is really to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss along with their care partners. We want everyone to be able to be empowered to live purpose-filled lives, and we're all about raising awareness, giving hope, and sharing the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. I'm also excited today because our channel expert living with the disease is Rick Phelps. And Rick was diagnosed with early onset um, Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010. And he's the founder of Memory People. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing good, Lori. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to just give you a moment to just tell people in your own words what Memory People is all about on Facebook and why you created it. Sure will. Thank you. Um, Memory People is a social networking site that we created back in, I don't know, I think it was November of 2010. It started out with me, and now we have over 1,600 members. We have uh, patients, advocates, caregivers, and family members. And uh, we're all there to do one thing. It's, well, actually two things, bring awareness and offer support for one another. Um, we don't talk about cures and uh, concoctions and, and the latest drug coming down. We leave that for other sites. So all we do is bring awareness and offer support for each other. It's a very, uh, it's come a long ways. And, and if I could, I'd like to take just a minute and explain a new thing that we've got going here. I started what I call a Skype group support meetings. And what this is, uh, anyone that, that has uh, support group meetings, I'm available to be there with them through the program Skype on your computer. I've done uh, three or four of these now with up to uh, 20, 25 uh, different uh, support groups, and uh, it's just turned out wonderful. Um, You know how I've said many times I'm not an expert in this disease, but I am a patient, and uh, I think you can get – I don't think you can get any better information than you can from a patient. So anyone that's interested in having me through Skype at one of their support group meetings, all they need to do is contact Leanne Chains at gmail.com, Leanne Chains at gmail.com, and she sets up the meetings for me. And what I do is I talk to the moderator a couple days before that, and we go over things, and I get to meet them, and then... uh, Meetings usually last about an hour, hour and a half, but like I said, it's, it's really turned out great, and uh, I, think, I think this thing is going to spread, I hope, anyway. It's all about awareness. Very interesting. I think it's uh, something that's greatly needed. So if people have any questions for either Rick or I, you can contact us through the front page of our radio show there. Um, feel free to 
um, shoot us an, an email. We'd love to talk to you. Um, we're all, we're always looking to to for both of us to grow our networks. Um, also on the homepage, um, we're we're looking to grow, um, just like Rick's group is with Memory People. And so, um, you know, we're just kind of a grassroots thing going on here. So if you like the show, um, I encourage you to to go ahead and click your Facebook page and spread it. You can email it. You can download it. You can. You can do all kinds of things. Um, if you're a tweeter, um, we would appreciate you tweeting about us as well. And during the show, if you have a question or a comment, all you have to do is use your chat box and type in your question or comment, or you can call in live to the show. And um, by doing that, um, you'll, you'll be asked to push one, and that will get you into my queue. And the number to do that is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. So let me go ahead and get rolling and introduce our guest today. I have Catherine Pierce with us, and she has over 30 years of um, experience, both personal and professional, with dementia care. Uh, Catherine first became involved with the Alzheimer's Association following the death of her father uh, from early onset in 1991. Her initial role was um, as a member of the Memory Walk and and being a volunteer there. And that led to a volunteer position on the Board of Directors and eventually assuming the role of President um, of the Board of Directors in 94. In 96, she resigned as president of the board to accept the staff position as the director of public policy. And then in 2009, the position was expanded um, to include responsibility for the chapter's professional caregiver educational program. Catherine then resigned from the Alzheimer's Association uh, just last year in 2011 to establish Dementia Care Strategies, Inc., which is a dementia-specific training, um, consulting, and advocating uh, advocacy firm. Her clients, um, you know, include all kinds of companies um, around the nation, and she is just an expert, really, in dementia behavior. Um, and so, I, I am so thrilled to have you with us today, Catherine. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very glad to be here. Wonderful, and I'm going to I'm going to um, introduce your partner in crime here to Mary Hogan um, before we um, get rolling with our questions. And Mary is one of eight older siblings of um, of the late Bill Hogan, and Bill had uh, Down syndrome, and he passed away from complications related to Alzheimer's disease at the age of 49. Her experience with Bill led her to advocate for um, improvement in, re- in resources and, um, you know, in aging in general. Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease is a huge factor out there because, as we know, Alzheimer's has no boundaries. Um, but in this particular um, category, it really isn't talked about a whole lot. And so I was thrilled to death actually to run across both Catherine and Mary because in my position I have had so many people ask, especially in long-term care and in group homes, 
you know, what do we do? We're not quite sure how to handle this. This is this is very different, um, and um, we need training on this. So I, it's just wonderful that you guys are doing what you're doing. Um, Mary has been involved in the steering committee on the National Task Force Group on Intellectually uh, Intellectual Disabilities and Dementia Practices, and both are just filled with a ton of resources. Um, both bios are quite extensive, and I'm not going to list everything here. I will on the blog because I just really want to jump in and and hear what you two are all about. So welcome, Mary. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you, and I too am happy to be here. And um, This is a wonderful opportunity. Well, good, good. Um, I, want, I would like to um, ask both of you, um, you know, why, uh, why you feel the passion that you have for this disease. I'd like to hear in your own words. And, Catherine, I'm going to let you go ahead and go first. Sure. I think, you know, like so many people that have been involved in, uh, you know, get themselves involved in working professionally in dementia, it comes from a personal experience. My father was 56 years old when he was diagnosed. That was back in 1981. We didn't know anything <laughs> then about Alzheimer's disease. I certainly never even heard the word before, and my mom and I cared for him at home for 10 years uh, up until just two weeks before he before he died. And, and I just felt so strongly. I met a lot of other caregivers. There were no resources at that point in time, or very, very few. And I just felt so strongly about it. It led to my involvement with the Alzheimer's Association, who I was involved with for 20 years. And, you know, as, as little as we knew back in 1981, we know more now, but the need has just increased so tremendously. And, you know, I do a lot of work with professionals. I do a lot of work with family caregivers as well. And I just, I just have this tremendous passion for wanting to try and, and ease the journey for people. So many families tell me they get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's and they don't get any information from their family physicians, who's the person they usually look to first for information about resources or what to do. They feel like they've really been set adrift after they give the diagnosis after they get the diagnosis, and I just love being able to help family caregivers and work with professionals as well um, to help them get the skills that they need uh, to not only improve the quality of life for people who are living with this disease now, but to help make their lives easier in the process. It's something I expect I will be involved with, with for the rest of my life. Oh, that that's wonderful. This topic is just such uh, touches my heart because I, I worked with the developmentally disabled for about nine years um, when I got out of school, and so uh, they're just so close to my heart. Um, Mary, how about you? Can you give us a little bit more insight regarding yourself? And um, I know it had to do with your brother, but I'm sure you've got a little more to say in terms of, of your feelings um, regarding this whole thing. Well, it was interesting to hear Catherine's story and, you know, the situation that she and her mom found themselves in. Catherine, when was your dad's diagnosis? 1981. Okay, so let's fast forward to 2005. And um, I, as I said in my bio, I'm one of eight, nine children, and I ended up being the primary um, advocate for my brother after um, our mom's death. And um, I became engaged in, care, in advocacy for Bill long before the diagnosis of, um, 
Alzheimer's disease. Um, in particular, people with Down syndrome have a host of other medical challenges that they um, are predisposed to experiencing in their lifetime. So advocacy was sort of a natural position to find myself in um, with Bill, especially after our mom died. Um, and then in mid to let's say about 2004, 2003, it became obvious that Bill was experiencing some mild changes and um, we talked about them. We also at that time talked vaguely about Alzheimer's um, disease as a possibility. But again, we really didn't understand where we were headed. We didn't understand the disease process. And then when there was a diagnosis made in 2005, and I began to search for more information um, specifically about how it related to people with intellectually intellectual disabilities, in particular, more particularly Down syndrome, I found that there was little or no information available for us on websites that were number one geared towards the general population or number two um, geared towards um, this syndrome in um, particular. And I think it's a very hard thing to talk about um, in the Down syndrome community. Um, so it, I think for a long period of time it has been something that has been overlooked and underserved. So after my brother's death, um, I decided that um, it was really important that people have access to information and um, that drove me to create a little advocacy brochure of my own and that's where the story began in terms of um, helping to develop resources and um, raise the national consciousness about this um, particular uh, aspect of Alzheimer's disease. Well, again, I, I feel so honored to have you, you know, both on the show because this is a this is a high need. And I know Rick will jump in and say, um, you know, in terms of this as well, it's it's just a difficult thing to diagnose with with any any population at all. Mm -hmm. But then when you you multiply it um, with the needs of the group that you're working with, um, it just um, you know. It's just really important to be able to support the person and the family um, as a whole. Can you um, talk to, and I'll let um, Catherine go ahead and take this question, why the proper diagnosis is so important in this, um, in this situation? Well, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I see on such a regular basis in the general population as well as in individuals with intellectual or developmental difficulties uh, you know, disabilities is is trying to get a proper diagnosis. And I, in terms of the general population, I see so many families who go to their family doctor because someone, you know, their loved one is having memory issues, and they go to the doctor, and what they're told is, oh yes, he's having problems with his memory. It must be Alzheimer's disease, or even worse, just dementia, and not doing the proper evaluation, medical evaluation, to find out is there a is there something that could be a reversible cause of the symptoms that they're seeing? Dementia isn't a diagnosis. It simply refers to a group of symptoms. And then the question is, well, what's causing that? And although, you know, the majority of people who have those symptoms will ultimately be found to have Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, or a vascular dementia, or a Lewy body dementia, there are some things that can be treated. And, and I'm passionate about that aspect of it because when my father was diagnosed, a good friend of his was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the same time, 
they both lived about 10 years, but this other gentleman's uh, progression of his disease looks very, very different from my father's. When my dad died, my mother wanted to have a brain autopsy to find out, you know, was it indeed Alzheimer's that at the time and, and still technically is the only way to definitively know if what's going on is Alzheimer's and had it. And indeed, the autopsy report came back. It had the, he had the characteristic plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease. At the same time, this other gentleman died shortly thereafter. His family also had an autopsy and found out not only was it not Alzheimer's disease, but it was something that could have been treated successfully had it been picked up early on. And I feel so strongly I don't want that to ever happen to another family. And I do see people that are misdiagnosed, you know, very commonly. So I think we need to do a lot more education of physicians on what constitutes the proper process for giving a diagnosis. There are protocols out there for physicians um, there are ways to do that. I think physician education in the general physician community is really lacking. And then when you add an intellectual disability to the picture, I think sometimes, and, and Mary's certainly the expert in this, but I think a lot of times those, those symptoms, the behaviors that arise and so forth, are attributed to the disability and not to necessarily, you know, is it, is it a dementia? And also, as Mary will tell you, people with intellectual disabilities, specifically Down syndrome, have a lot of other medical issues that are going on, and those need to be ruled out first. Um, and so I think it's a huge educational piece that needs to be conducted, not just with, with families, but with physici the physician community as well. And certainly for the professional caregivers in the intellectual and, and developmental disabilities community, um, individuals with, with those conditions didn't used to live long enough Develop, develop Alzheimer's. Generally speaking, Alzheimer's is, a, is an age-related condition, and, and those, that population didn't always live long enough. And the great thing is medical advances have come along. People are now living longer, but individuals with Down syndrome specifically are now living long enough that they're starting to show these signs of Alzheimer's disease at an earlier age and so forth. And those providers aren't used to caring for an aging population and the challenges that come along with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. They're used to helping people try and develop their skills, and I think it's tremendously difficult for, for those providers in particular to start seeing individuals lose their skills and how do they cope with that, what sort of accommodations do they need to make in their programs to support the person throughout the remainder of, of the disease. It's a, it's a huge and growing need, um, and we're not going to see less of this. We're going to see more of this as our population ages and the baby boomers start to reach that age in the general population um, of, you know, of that age of risk. I, I agree. I agree. Anything that you um, want to add to that, Mary, at all? Or? Yeah, there are a few comments I'd like to make in that regard. I think it's really important to um, understand that people with um, intellectual disabilities in general do not for, um, develop Alzheimer's disease at a rate that is different than the general population. Um, so, you know, that's one group of individuals, and then I think within that group of individuals um, is your subgroup of, in, of people with Down syndrome who have a known um, um, genetic anomaly that's going to contribute to um, the onset of this disease. And I think that um, researchers will commonly say that all people with Down syndrome will have the brain pathology at the time of death, but not all people with Down syndrome will um, manifest the clinical features of the disease over the course of their lifetime. And right now, um, 
the statistics suggest that it used to be before they'd say everybody gets Alzheimer's disease, and I think now there is a more research available that suggests that about 50% of people with Down syndrome will develop um, Alzheimer's disease by age 60. So that means people in their 40s and 50s, this is sort of a cumulative number, so that people by by 60, 50% of individuals will have um, the disease. And I think because of so many co-occurring diseases, it's oftentimes very difficult to tease out, is it, the, uh, is it a thyroid condition, is it some other condition that might be contributing to this? In my brother's case, um, there was a period of time when elevated TSH levels did um, contribute to um, the difficulties that he was experiencing. And I think something that Catherine noted that's really, really critical is the whole idea of a differential diagnosis needs to occur for people um, across our population, not just people in the general population, but people um, with intellectual disabilities and, and Down syndrome. It's critically important to have a differential diagnosis um, because they can't verbalize what other things that might be bothering them over time. Um, I do know that there um, there have been lots of instances where um, a primary care provider might jump to the conclusion that um, what the person is manifesting is symptoms of um, early Alzheimer's um, and when, in fact, it could be related to menopause or, um, and as I noted in my brother's case, in um, thyroid conditions. And I think that the idea, what's so hard with this population is because they already have um, a, long, a lifetime of, of challenges um, cognitively, it's difficult to assess um, the cognitive piece of that um, in, in a more traditional way that someone might do in the physician's office or the neurologist's office. And this group that I'm involved with, this national task group, we are trying to help um, create a very simple um, screening tool that can be used by families and caregivers to, to help record data over time. So, um, And I think that we have created some opportunities, too, to um, understand the need for a baseline when people reach about 40 when they have Down syndrome and about 50 when they have un other forms of intellectual disabilities so that you can begin to look at what might be the subtle changes over time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in my brother Bill's case, <clears throat> Sorry, the changes were yes, subtle at first. Um, over the course of several years, they were very subtle. Um, and I think that we didn't connect the dots. So by having a baseline at an earlier age, I think that does provide families and caregivers to um, closely um, evaluate or monitor um, changes that might be related to the disease process or indicative of other um, um, prob problems that the individual might be having. I think the greatest concern for me, though, um, in my experience with my brother Bill, is once the diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's disease was made, I felt like um, there was a, a very clear tendency to attribute everything that he manifested to um, Alzheimer's disease, and um, there wasn't an, um, a sincere effort made to rule out other kinds of things that could be contributing to behaviors that he was manifesting um, at specific times. Um, I know he stopped eating and um, kept asking us if food was spicy, and um, we kept reassuring him that it wasn't, but he nonetheless he... Um, began to um, 
reject food because he thought it was going to be spicy and it was attributed to um, dementia when, in fact, it was really a gastric issue that could be addressed and um, was addressed eventually. Um, so those are examples, I think, that make me very concerned about the importance with this group of people to to approach them um, with great care in terms of making this diagnosis because I think that there are already health care disparities and when you add a diagnosis of um, dementia um, or Alzheimer's, um, de- uh, d- dementia, Alzheimer's type, I think it we run the risk of um, increasing the disparities in care that might be available to them. Well, that makes sense. Rick, do you have any comments that you wanted to add? Well, I did. I, I can't tell you how important that your two guests, Mary and Kathleen, they're they're right on the money. Um, I can tell you, my local doctor who we've had for 30 years, it it took two years, two solid years to get him on board to refer me to a neurologist. He kept saying that my problem, my memory deficit was due to stress and and things like that due to my job, and and my daughter had passed away some 10 years prior to that. But I I knew that wasn't it because EMS wasn't stressful to me. I loved that job. I'd done it for 25 years. And then when I finally was, uh, after the B12 and and all the blood work and everything, the CAT scans, they referred me to a neurologist. And this guy, it took him, (laughs) it's unbelievable, but I was only in there 17 minutes. From the time we checked in to the time we walked out of that office, 17 minutes, and this guy gave me a terminal disease diagnosis of of EOAD, he didn't explain anything. He didn't tell us an 800 number for the Alzheimer's Association. He didn't give us any pamphlets. He said, we'll see you in six months. Here's your Exelon patches. And I didn't even know what them was for. So you're exactly right when you say, uh, you know, these doctors are very intelligent, but they're not very uh, um, patient-wise educated, I guess is what you would call it. And I'm certainly not running down any of them. They've all helped me out immensely, but their bedside manners and some of their uh, – they got. They just have to realize that the common person, you know, I run a squad for 24 years and I knew about Alzheimer's, but I needed more information than what was given to me. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, and you said it well. Can I just interject? I want to. That I sure. think it goes to show how little we have advanced really in in the years. My father. Uh, was diagnosed in 1981 and had the same exact experience in 1981 as Rick had in in 2010. It took two years to get a diagnosis. He was told exactly the same things. It's stress, it's thyroid, it's so forth and so on. And it, it so his story is identical in 1981 to Rick's here in, in 2010. Um, and that's kind of a sad commentary, uh, I think. It, it, so it really strikes me even more now how how poorly informed our medical in, in community really can be um, even after all these years. I just also want to comment on something Mary said about attributing um, everything that manifests to, to dementia. It's true in the general population, but, you know, one of the things I harp on, whether it's the general population or people um, with intellectual disabilities or Down syndrome who develop Alzheimer's disease, is the issue of pain, and Mary has an incredibly compelling story that I use frequently, you know, in workshops, even for providers of the general population, about where her brother was yelling and yelling and yelling, and here 
it turns out he had um, broken ribs, but yet it took a while to get that picked up on because we unfortunately tend to attribute those sorts of behaviors to just being part of the disease process. When, you know, my mantra is, you know, behavior is communication. All behavior has meaning. We have to be detectives and figure out what's behind that, and, and those behaviors really aren't necessarily a normal part of the disease process. And so, you know, there's just, there are so many issues, you know, especially when you have, have people who aren't able to verbalize what's really bothering them and why, you know, his gastric distress, not liking spicy food being attributed to the disease process, his yelling and yelling um, being attributed to being part of the disease process and, and not picking up on the fact that he had, you know, a pretty serious medical issue that was going on there. Um, you know, we need to do a lot, a lot more educating and raising awareness across the board from professional and family caregivers to the physicians, uh, you know, to everyone. I agree, and I just got a letter, and some of you may have seen it from our friends Norms McNamara over in the U.K., and he was so excited because he said he came from the best conference ever, and I didn't get a chance to read it all, but it was absolutely incredible. Uh, the conference he went to was a conference, uh, it sounded like, of doctors, and again, I may have some of the details wrong because I haven't read the whole thing, but I, I will post it on the blog later today or this weekend. Um, but the conference was set up of, you know, like tables of 10 or so. And at each table, there was a person diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the physicians rotated tables. And it was all about talking directly to a person with the diagnosis, telling them what it's like and what they can do to help. And he said it was absolutely phenomenal. And the reception by the physicians was unbelievable. And I love it. It's like, I know. I, it just gives me goosebumps, you know, because it's like, oh, progress, you know. <laughs> um, because they do. They need to talk to the people with the disease um, to to really understand what they can do to help. And so I just think that that is um, fantastic. And, and Rick, even Boy. with your... your um, you know, little Skype sessions you're having, that might be something that you want to pursue with physicians because a lot of times they don't have time to leave, um, but they're they're all getting, I think, a little bit more savvy with the, the Skyping um, and the electronic delivery of, of services there. So um, well, let's get on to uh, another question. For a second. Oh, oh sure, sure. Um, I, I wanted to interject that I have... Uh, contacted several physicians and neurologists and things like that and and like I said I'm not I'm not knocking anybody but I run into a brick wall every time the I've been to personally five neurologists and I have yet to find one that will listen to me as a patient um, they just don't <laughs> they I, I don't understand it it's beyond me I've said for two years now you can't get any better information from a patient because I live this disease 24 7 and now's the time that I can communicate. I don't know if I can do it six months from now or six years from now, but uh, everything I tell somebody is exactly 100% correct with as far as Alzheimer's or EOAD because I live it. But try to get somebody to listen is, in my world, is almost impossible. And I, I don't know what to do to get, you know, I'm hoping this group Skype support 
spreads because, uh, you know, I'm not making a dime off this. It's not about any – it's free, you know. And uh, it, and just like Norm is saying, the people that I've talked to, is, it just helps them out immensely. But getting people to get involved is, is like pulling teeth sometimes. But I'm – you know how I am, Lori. I want everything done yesterday, and it takes time. Yeah, I, I agree. I, but I, I also – firmly believe, and I, I've never been to Europe, so I'll do that disclosure, but from the communications I have had, they are just leaps and bounds ahead of us here in the USA, I and so, I know that yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people don't like me saying that, but they get things done so much faster, and they appear to be so much more collaborative and open-minded um, in terms of their philosophies um, with this disease, and and, and Mary and Catherine, I don't know if you have any comments or if you, you know, have any feelings one way or the other, but I have just been, I mean, there's been times literally my jaw has dropped and I can't even tell you how many times and how quickly they are able to institute change and get things up and running. I mean, they are actually starting over there to do, which would be a great thing to do here too, and I don't want to give us, get us too far off track, but they are doing dementia-friendly cities. We're starting to kick that off. I mean, yeah. that's huge. I, can I so comment I, on that um, sure. observation? Um, when my brother was on the decline, I did happen to find resources in two different places um, outside of the United States. <clears throat> I found a small organization called Down Syndrome Scotland that had um, some very useful information for me, especially um, as it relates to um, explaining my brother's situation to his peer group. Um, so, and also they had some great information about how to approach physicians. And so I, I would agree with you that we sometimes are able to find things outside of the United States and then scratch our heads and wonder why they're not available here. Another website that I, um, or a group of people that I've been in contact and involved with is in Australia. Um, the website is called fightdementia.org.au, um, and it, it is not the Alzheimer's Association in Australia. It is a separate group in Australia, um, and they have collaborated with um, the Down Syndrome Association and their local government to create um, some very um, easy, user-friendly information about Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. And, Lori, I sent that link to you earlier today, so maybe you could post that at some point in time when the yep, show I ends. I saw that. <clears throat> and I did approach a friend of mine who's a physician at Harvard and asked him, why is this so easily done outside of the United States? And his response to me was, there are smaller population groups. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry about that. Um, smaller populations and more homogeneous. So that it seems easier to agree and move things forward. At least that's his take on it. And um, because I do scratch my head and say, why can this get done outside of the United States and we take so long to move things along? And I did talk to somebody at the CDC about it, um, the Center for Disease Control, and she just said we have so many layers of bureaucracy that it's very hard to get consensus on, on something. Um, to produce a document or otherwise. 
I, I will say that the um, role of the primary care physician, I think, is going to become even more critical as time goes on um, as an outcome of the National Alzheimer's Project Act um, Advisory Council and whatever the outcome will be the national plan. I think there is a recognition that um, physicians, primary care physicians, will be on the front line more and more and that they need more information. And then you add the whole layer of um, dealing also with um, primary care physicians who have little or no um, opportunity while preparing to become a doctor um, to deal, to learn about the issues related to the intellectual disabilities community or Down syndrome and as well. And people with Down syndrome often remain with their um, pediatricians till they're well beyond pediatrician age. And I think there's a, a larger movement to be able to train physicians to take on um, uh, people with Down syndrome um, and understand the vast array of complications from sleep apnea to um, osteoporosis to um, gastric issues to sensory decline over time. And people with Down syndrome have something called, experience something called accelerated or early aging that um, even our family wasn't aware of it. But I do remember one day we all got together with Bill after maybe a month of not seeing him and looked at one another and said, oh, my God, he looks like he's aged 10 years in just a couple of months' time. So uh, I think there's a lot of information that uh, physicians don't have access to um, that we're hoping that over time with the recognition of the need to increase their knowledge base, um, we're hoping for improved care. And I do acknowledge that outside of the United States there are many things that, that are occurring that are at a much rap more rapid rate, and I think that we need to look to that model and say, what can we do to reduce the bu bureaucracy in order to um, accelerate information, the availability of information, and research in general related um, to Down syndrome is occurring outside of the United States that needs to be incorporated into what's happening here. Um, we've had great response from researchers in terms of our appeal to them to um, support the inclusion of people with um, intellectual disabilities and Down syndrome in the national plan. Um, this latest edition of the draft um, um, does not is not as inclusive as we would like um, it folks to be. So hopefully that will change with time as well. Okay, great. Now, Mary, can you tell us? Um, kind of the definitions of ID and DS, and you already spoke about aging and, um, you know, in this population, but can you define those terms for people? You know, what what really do they stand for and what does it mean? Well, for with an intellectual disability, it's somebody ha that would have a cognitive um, impairment that is there for, since early childhood um, that they've lived with over their lifetime, and it can be attributed to, you know, a vast number of different um, causes. Um, it can be uh, uh, due to birth injury, to disease, to, um, but the, the, the issue is that it's it's something that's manifested over time. It's acquired before in early childhood and impacts their ability to um, acquire skills, to live in the community, to um, function independently. Um, and with people with Down syndrome, there is a genetic anomaly, and certainly there are people in um, the intellectual disabilities community that would have a genetic anomaly as well. 
but people with Down syndrome have um, mutation on their 21st chromosome. Um, they have an extra chromosome on there that um, so that's that's creating to their predis uh, the creating or contributing to the predisposition to um, develop the features of um, Alzheimer's disease at a much earlier age because of the um, production of the beta amyloid plaque. Um, the precursor protein that is associated with the 21st chromosome. So they have a very specific genetic mutation that contributes to the um, development of the disease. And people with intellectual disabilities can have a may not obviously don't have that same kind of mutation, but may have some other um, insult to the brain that's causing them to um, have delays in terms of acquisition of, of the kinds of skills that the general population would acquire. Does that explain it yep. to you well enough? Yeah, that, that's great. And, um, Catherine, can you talk about behaviors and, and kind of define behaviors and how that is a form of communication? I know that that was uh, something that you wanted to definitely address. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the, the, that whole behavioral piece is a, is really a passion for me because it's oftentimes what makes it so difficult for family caregivers to continue to care for someone in the home environment. Um, my mantra, as I said earlier, is always behavior is communication. All behavior has meaning. And I think, unfortunately, it has been a tendency over the years to attribute um, many of those behaviors to, oh, that's just part of the disease process. That's what, ha you know, people with Alzheimer's develop these funny behaviors or or they become angry and aggressive because of the disease. You know, that's just part of the disease. And in point of fact, almost all behaviors, there are very, very few behaviors that we can't, if we become that detective and start to kind of peel back the layers of the onion, that we can't find out that there's a really very reasonable and rational meaning for. And I oftentimes tell the story of, of a gentleman, um, and I tell the story in my workshops all the time, of, of this gentleman who um, had been living at home with his family, and because the sleep-wake cycle often gets um, disturbed in people with Alzheimer's disease, he was up at all night, which was causing a lot of sleep deprivation for his wife. And so they made the painful decision that they needed to place him in an assisted living facility because his wife was just was just wearing down and couldn't continue to do it. And on his first night there, he woke up in the middle of the night and didn't know where he was. And I think all of us at one time or another have had the experience of waking up in a hotel somewhere or a strange place, and for that kind of split second, we don't know where we are. And that's very... Um, you know, disturbing to us and is scary to us. And so, of course, it was to that to that man as well. And the next thing that happens is it's dark in his room and a man, it happened to be a male staff member, walks into the room. Now, if you put yourself back in that place where we've probably all been at one time or another of waking up and for a few seconds we don't know where we are because, you know, if we're cognitively intact in a few seconds we say, oh, yeah, I'm at the Hilton out at the airport. I'm flying out tomorrow on vacation. Well, this gentleman didn't have that ability because of, of the disease process occurring in his brain. And now picture yourself in that position and a strange man walks into the room. I think we would all feel very threatened by that. Obviously, he did as well. And the next step was that this man walked up to him and 
in an attempt to get him to get back into bed, put his hand on him. Now, again, if we put ourselves back in that position of waking up in the night, not knowing where we are, not being able to reorient ourselves, and some strange person walks into the room, we're already feeling threatened, and now they walk up and they put their hand on us, um, this gentleman reacted, as I think many of us would, and he lashed out and tried to defend himself, and he punched the staff member, which, long story short, got him labeled as being combative. The facility did not want him to stay there any longer. He was removed from the facility, um, and it goes on from there. But the point is, his response was a very reasonable and rational response to what he perceived as a threat. So many behaviors that we see are, are the result of someone with a dementia who, because of the disease process, isn't able to, to um, you know, maintain their thoughts the way a cognitively intact person is relating to a threat. And, and so their response to that sometimes seems to be angry or aggressive behavior when, in fact, it's not. They're, they're feeling threatened and defending themselves. And if we know that, then we then know how to interact um, in a more effective manner with a person so that they don't feel threatened and that behavior doesn't arrive. The same is true of, of pain. Um, I you know, tell the story again oftentimes of the lady in a, in a nursing home um, who was sitting in her wheelchair and rocking and moaning. And it was when I was with the Alzheimer's Association and a staff member um, said to the, the facility staff, what's going on with this lady? And they said, oh, that's just Esther. She's always like that. In other words, just attributing it to being part of the disease process. Well, in fact, um, they finally were convinced to go back and look at this lady's records, and she had a history of migraines. Now, if you've ever had a migraine, you know how incredibly painful that can be. I'd rock and moan, too, if I wasn't getting medication to treat it. And they finally, because they dug at the urging of, of our staff member, they dug, you know, through the records, discovered that this was an issue, were able to get her on the proper medications, at which point she was able to return to normal, to partaking in normal activities, um, and and the problem was resolved. I, this wasn't an issue that had just occurred over a day or two. This was this poor lady had been this way for a very long period of time at this point. Um, and so I think, you know, that whole issue of behaviors is is one that we way too often just tribute to, oh, these things happen as a result of the disease. And in fact, there's only a very, very tiny percentage, and I can tell you millions of these stories, um, that, you know, if we really stop to think, oftentimes people with dementia, particularly in the later stages, aren't able to verbalize what they're feeling physically, what they're feeling emotionally, and the behaviors we see are, are an attempt to meet an unmet need, be it a physical pain or an emotional need, an emotional pain. And if we, start, if we educate ourselves and understand those things, um, we can eliminate many of those things and absolutely increase the quality of life for the person living with the disease process and make life considerably easier for caregivers as well for whom... Um, you know, these whether they're professional caregivers or certainly in the case of family caregivers, um, it's so upsetting to them, painful to them as families to watch, but they also don't know what to do um, and what's the maybe is the source of, of these behaviors that they're seeing. Um, so I'm an absolute bug on, uh, you know, trying to, to educate people that Behaviors are not a normal occurrence in the disease process. Something is causing these behaviors to occur. 
and we need to figure out what it is. And it's usually, you know, relatively easy to do by taking a step back and, and going through a series of steps about, you know, what was happening in the environment at the time. Is there a medical issue that's causing a problem? It, it's not that hard to do. It's not rocket science. Um, sadly, um, you know, people just don't have the education they need to, to walk themselves through those steps. Uh, I totally agree. When I when I go out and, and speak and train, I, I kind of laugh when people talk about these behaviors, and, and I tell people, you know, a behavior, they process things exactly the same way we do. I don't care who we are, what condition we have, but we all process the same things. It's our perceptions and our experiences equal our reactions. And our reactions get pinpoint <clears throat> the behavior when someone judges that they're inappropriate. Um, mm-hmm. But it's all because of, you know, kind of all goes back to Maslow's needs, uh, you know, hierarchy yeah. of what's what's missing. And um, I don't know if you guys have this or not, but, I mean, I talk to people all over the world asking them for this environmental checklist that so many of us professionals talk about, but I couldn't find anyone who had a tool that they actually use um, that they could give out to people. Um, do you guys have one? Because I finally developed one, and I'm, I'm more than willing to share that um, with with anybody because I want it to become a living and breathing document because this isn't Lori LeBay's world. I'm trying to figure out the world. Can I respond to that know? to that um, inquiry? Sure. I do know that there are some people um, that are looking at environmental issues, and I think there's a woman named um, Kathy Bishop at the University of Rochester in New York, and I think Kathy does a, a focus on environmental issues, but I think we would all welcome um, the availability of a checklist and uh, because I think it just increases the likelihood that people will be better cared for um, and, and their needs better met and their um, emotions and uh, responded to um, and respected. I, I wouldn't, wanted to go back to a couple of things that Catherine said, if I might. Is that okay with you? Sure. Yeah, um, Catherine had referred to the issue of sleep and the gentleman, et cetera. I think that sleep is probably one of the greatest challenges that um, people with Alzheimer's disease um, living in a group home um, will face, and I think the staff sees sleep as one of the greatest challenges as well, especially as the sleep patterns um, become reversed. And I, I think that in my brother's case, I became more and more frustrated by um, the need to impose some uh, somebody else's time clock on my brother in terms of when he should sleep and when he should be awake. Because he was involved in a day program, of course, the bus was there at 7.30 or 8, and he would continue to go to a program until um, two weeks before the end of his life. But I think the sleep issues oftentimes are the greatest issue for a group home. Um, if that's where a person with an intellectual um, disability is residing. And I think that there's too often a a really quick um, 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 opportunity to use medication to um, address something that might more naturally be addressed in terms of um, respecting the um, the sleep-wake cycle. I do know in Bill's case that... um, 
the group home was concerned about his lack of sleep and the impact on other people if he was awake and making noise. And very quickly, the, the medications accelerated and became layered and caused many, many more problems for him. Um, in addition to which I mentioned before that people with Down syndrome um, and many other intellectual people with and without intellectual disabilities um, have sleep apnea, which also I think can compromise cognitive functioning as well um, to add insult to injury here and, and being able to tease out what's what. And um, the other issue I wanted to mention too is about um, pain. I think that we forget the um, that we have the opportunity to access palliative care um, in people with intellectual disabilities as we do in the general population, and that we're waiting too long before we ask ourselves the question about pain. I know that my brother Bill had osteoporosis, he had osteo he had arthritis, and it was um, highly likely that much of what he manifested. Um, in terms of behavior, was related to pain. Um, and it wasn't until we were able to um, partner with a geriatric physician who listened to our um, observations and said, you know, it's very possible that it could be pain, and then introduced a very, very low dose of medication um, that was up for pain management. I also add that people with um, Down syndrome in particular are very susceptible to um, layers of medication and um, need to be, um, that needs to be factored in. Um, they react and um, metabolize uh, medications differently. Um, so I think that physicians, again, need to be more aware of this. Um, and the other thing that I'd like to mention is um, we keep coming back to education. I think that... Um, when I look back and say what would I have liked to have seen different, I think and I would have liked to have seen my brother's, um, the agency that was providing him with his support, I think that this an awareness of the fact that their demographics predi predicted that they were going to be faced with issues related to aging. And rather than be proactive, I think we found ourselves in a position of being reactive to changes. So I, I'm an advocate for education for staff in terms of issues related to aging in general and then issues related to um, dement the, the complications of dementia in particular. And I think that that would go along with um, education about behaviors and environmental factors that could make life much um, more improve the quality of life for the individual that's been diagnosed and also I think for the family and, and family I mean the family of whomever they're living with whether it be a group home or shared living um, or in a, a residential facility or assisted living I do think if we think about those things it would make care um, management much easier um, all the way around and increase, improve the quality of life I agree I definitely, definitely agree on that. Um, can we, let's see, I'm trying to think. Of, I've got so many questions for you, gals. Rick, do you, you're back on the line with us. Do you have anything that you want to uh, to toss in before we get into another question? Yes, if I could. Uh, once again, they they both hit the nail on the head. I have uh, been suffering from sleep deprivation for probably at least two years. And... Uh, Anybody knows that when you don't get enough sleep, you don't think right. You know, it, it just, even if you're normal, you don't think right. And then when you have this disease and you, your sleep patterns are messed up, uh, it's just, it, it 
compounds the problem. So my last trip to the neurologist at Ohio State University, I was discussing this problem with him, and he decided to take me off of uh, Xanax, wean me off of that, and then he put me on a drug called Depakote, which is for seizures, but still uh, he said it would put me into a deeper sleep. Well, that didn't work at all because weaning me off Xanax was not the answer because I, I, I just couldn't go without that. That helps me, my depression. So that was a bad period of time for probably three or four weeks. And the Depakote, I have to say, it, it might have worked for about three or four weeks. But now what I suffer with and have for a long time is, is horrific nightmares. I... Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night, uh, night sweats, uh, the pillow and the sheets are soaked, and I'm screaming out loud. And one night here, not too long ago, I was actually choking Phyllis June. I mean, beating her on the back, and you know, so something. We have to do something about this. And I, I just every time you go to your doctor, a neurologist, they want to turn towards a new drug or switch drugs or whatever. And I would think. Of course, I'm just a patient, but I would think that maybe there's a way of battling this without drug usage. I mean, I'm not one to take drugs anyway, and I'm taking an assortment of about eight different pills a day plus my Exelon patch, so I have to do that. But uh, the sleep deprivation is, is a real problem with this disease. Um, it, uh, it's, it's horrible to be up at 2 o'clock in the morning every morning, and, and, and uh, like, she's, like well, the one guest said, it takes me about 30 or 30 minutes or so to even figure out where I'm at. And, of course, I'm in my own home, but my brain doesn't kick in for 20, 30 minutes. I just, it's like I can't find anything, and it's just terrible. But uh, they, they once again hit the nail on the head. Okay, great. And I, I think that it's important, you know, for us to look at all of the similarities, not just all of the differences. And I... I think so much of the time um, as a society in the U.S., we, we focus on the differences and um, and not that they don't exist because they definitely do. And, and one of the things that I want to ask next, and um, Catherine, I'm going to throw this one to you, is how do um, individuals with dementia perceive the world differently than than someone who is cognitively intact? Um, can you can you talk, you know, to that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely, and I think, you know, you raised a great question, and it almost in some ways goes back to what we talked about earlier about resources being available outside of the United States. Um, when I, and this is true, I make this comment based on people with intellectual disabilities or Down syndrome with dementia as well as the general population, um, but when I first started getting involved in trying to put together workshops that would be of value to uh, intellectual disability providers, community um, providers, and so forth. Um, the information I found, by and large, came from the Down syndrome um, in Scotland or in Australia. And one of the things they had was an excellent video um, called Supporting Derek, um, which is a video of, an, of, of a gentleman who has Down syndrome, and it's him in his, in his group home, and how he perceives the world differently, and I use it in all my workshops now uh, because I don't think anyone is really aware that people with dementia, and, and I want to just say as an aside, I'm so grateful to Rick for, for everything he's doing. I, I truly believe that one of the only ways we're going to move forward on any of these issues 
is if the individuals who are living with this disease currently get out there on the forefront and talk and help raise awareness and talk about their experiences. Um, I, at this, thankfully, you know, don't have Alzheimer's disease. I have an increased risk because my father did it at an early age. Um, I, I'm going to be out there with Rick if I do talking ab about these issues. Uh, but but the perception of the world is very different. For instance, people with dementia need a much higher level of lighting than individuals who don't have dementia do. Um, even something as simple as patterns in carpets, the visual spatial perceptions change. Individuals with dementia lose their, their peripheral vision. And this can be an issue not just for in the case of coming up behind someone or from the side and startling them, but we know there are many people who have, uh, are in the early stages of, of dementia and some even further than that who are still driving their vehicles for whom this can become very dangerous. They may not see a car coming up on the side or a kid running across the street and, and have an accident. Visual perception changes. Um, you know, taste, taste can change. There's changes in all the senses. People, people's taste will change and people will say, well, my mother doesn't eat as much as she used to anymore. And again, think that that's just part of the disease when in fact, you know, they'll say all she wants to do is eat chocolate. Well, in fact, her tastes are changing and, and it is those sweeter flavors um, that are more appealing to, to individuals. Um, even something like the temperature, temperature changes um, are impacted. And so for someone with a, with a form of dementia, um, the room may feel perfectly comfortably warm to us, but to them it may be too, too, cold, you know, too cold or too warm. And then we see people who are accused of taking their clothes off, of exposing themselves, when in fact they're just too warm and the room may feel comfortable to us, so we don't understand that behavior. But for that person, they're doing what they need to, to meet their physical discomfort. They're not trying to expose themselves. They're just trying to get comfortable. Um, this, the virtual dementia tour, which I'm sure, Laura, you're familiar with, uh, oh, developed, uh, which I absolutely love. I've done it. I encourage people to do it because it gives you a whole new sense of how confusing the environment is for someone who's living with Alzheimer's disease or one of the related dementias, and it's a huge eye-opener. Um, and I wish every single professional caregiver and every single family caregiver could go through that virtual dementia tour um, because I think it would really... Um, would raise awareness tremendously to the challenges that people who are living with this disease face every day in terms of navigating their environment and and their surroundings uh, because all of those things change and we don't we we so often tend and I have people even now or in 2012 who say to me oh Alzheimer's disease people just you know that's a memory problem people get a little forgetful with that don't they and it's so much more than that. Every aspect of, an of a person's ability to function becomes impaired because of this disease process. And this is a disease process. It's no different than cancer, heart disease, any of those other diseases. It's, it's unfortunate that, and I, I'm getting into another area, but that the stigma is such um, that I think we don't appreciate that this is a disease process, just as many other diseases are. Years ago, we didn't talk about cancer. People didn't want to admit they had cancer. That's changed now, um, and I hope that someday we'll see that with Alzheimer's because I still know of people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's who, who either first of all are afraid to go 
get a medical evaluation because they don't want to be told the bad news because of this mental image that that they have. Um, and, and I think we just need to do so much more in that area. But again, it impacts every area of a, of a person's ability to function. And, but it is due to a disease, to a disease process. And again, it's, it's an education and awareness building issue. And I just I think Rick's doing such a great thing talking about his experiences. And and I know it will go a long way towards towards raising awareness. I wish we had more Rick Phelps out there in the in the world who would take up the charge with him because I truly believe, you know, research is great and no one wants a cure for this disease any more than I do. My father had it and died from it. I'm at increased risk for it. I have a son um, who potentially down the road, you know, may be at risk for it. And so, you know, I absolutely believe we need a cure, but I absolutely also believe we need to pay more attention to the needs of the people who are living with this disease right now today and I think that's an oftentimes an overlooked area. I, I totally agree. Totally, totally agree. And it's, I think that's one of the reasons I even developed um, the radio platform was to get us all to kind of step up to the plate because it is about um, being collaborative and letting the voice be heard because we don't know what we don't know. And um, so it's it's very important for us to all step up to the plate and... and um, share our knowledge. Otherwise, it's kind of a book on a shelf that doesn't get read. <laughs> yeah. And so wonderful. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna pose a question back to Mary here again. Um, and Mary, can you talk a, a little bit more to the importance of, of establishing a baseline in recording medical history and how that can come into play? I know we've touched on that a little bit more, and if you feel we've covered it, that's okay too. But I wanted to make sure that we... We covered everything that you wanted on that area. On no, that I, I, I really um, appreciate the opportunity to go back and revisit that because I do think that that's a really important um, factor, and I think that it's something that people can um, be mindful of in a very simple, natural way. And um, I think that if um, families understand the importance of it in terms of helping with a, a the possibility of a future diagnosis or ex uh, the exclusion of the, the disease as well. But I think it, what we're suggesting is that um, some baseline information be begin to be collected at about age 40. And that would be, in my, in my sense of what I would have done is had I been more aware of how useful this would have been, would be perhaps recording Bill annually doing something, whether it was making a sandwich or um, having a conversation or playing a game. Um, with, he, was a, he loved to play backgammon. Um, so, so I think giving people in, insight into what the individual can do at a certain point in time, and I think collecting maybe artifacts like things they've written or things they've created or information about their hobbies, um, sort of just an annual inventory about what the person is like, and then just do that on an annual basis. Um, I think in this digital age, even those of us who are very um, unfamiliar with a lot of digital features um, could really ac accomplish that um, easily and then find the information very useful over time. I think taking photographs and having you know videos of the person doing something are in, are going to be invaluable when you go see a physician five years later and they look at the person 
and they have Down syndrome and maybe now they're not communicating in the same way, shape, or form, they very quickly leap to the conclusion that the person was always like that. And no matter what you say or do, I think um, I always felt like somebody was rolling their eyes at me, like, uh-huh, yes, he used to read the weather and tell you about the weather in Hong Kong. Um, so um, I think those are very, very important medical um, clues to what's going on. And there is something called um, a medical passport, which was created by a woman named um, Dr. Elizabeth Perkins at the University of South Florida, and it's available online as well. And it's a way of just keeping track of medication and, and, and medical history so that when the person does end up at either a physician's office or at a, an emergency room where it's very often the case that people with intellectual disabilities um, or Down syndrome may, may find themselves, um, I think it would be very useful to have so that the the doctor has accurate information about what other possible things could be going on um, with the individual. So, um, and also in in light of baseline data, um, I think this little screening tool that people are um, are considering with the national task group is gives you an opportunity to look at things over time as well. Um, it's sort of a screening instrument that um, people in group homes or care families can use and can present to the physician in an annual examination, giving some indicators of change over time. You know, uh, my brother was this methodical keeper of a calendar. Um, he he had elaborate system for recording the events of the day, including he would note good day, bad day, and PRN and um, a host of other things on his calendar, letting him know whether he had to take medication that day for his stomach, which you know later showed up as um, again as it reared its ugly head. But those were the kind of indicators for us over time that something was happening. This was a guy that loved to do this. It was a ritual. Um, but that information about changes in, in um, interest and changes in um, their ability to play a game um, are really critical in terms of giving you clues that are going to be very helpful over time. Um, and I'm... I think that my greatest concern for people um, at this point in time in terms of medical history and medications, et cetera, um, I'm going to fast forward to being admitted to um, the hospital after an emergency room visit. In this day and age, we are more and more likely um, going to be seen by a hospitalist, somebody that's totally unfamiliar with you or your history, um, and for people with intellectual disabilities, and um, that's a really giant obstacle because of communication issues and um, turnover every couple of days. Um, again, a lack of exposure in terms of um, their own background and training and uh, about how to communicate with into, uh, people with intellectual disabilities. So I think it further compromises any good care that you know, otherwise might be available. I do know at Rush Hospital in Chicago, they are, they, I just went to a webinar the other day and they have come up with um, some very interesting things to, that can be done when somebody with an intellectual disability is admitted to a hospital. But I'm getting kind of away from your, your um, original question about the baseline. But the baseline, I think, is going to provide people um, with a great deal of information because it allows you to compare the person to themselves over time. 
rather than using instruments that we might use with the general population. This allows you to look at the, the individual and compare their ability to function over time so that you can um, look at discrete changes and better understand if there's a disease process taking place. I do wish that we had understood the importance of that with Bill. I think it would have shaped some decision-making, um, both medical decision-making and maybe some decisions about his living arrangement and um, whether we um, would have considered a change in living environment prior to the the disease progressing to a point where transition was absolutely traumatic. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really helpful tool, and I hope that families will understand how simple it is to do that on an annual um, at an annual occasion and simply comparing the same thing from year to year. Well, great. Well, thank you for that. Um, Rick, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, any comments on what Mary just said? Um, I, I did want to say that uh, I have just, I've got a meeting uh, set up with our hospital, our local hospital administrator here for just that reason. Um, I want to see if they'll come up with a with a deal where you could put a a uh, purple bracelet, plastic bracelet, on a uh, patient that has uh, yeah. dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like that. Of course, it's going to entail more than just putting a purple bracelet on somebody. Somebody's got to be trained in this. I mean, you right. change nurses every eight hours, and but it's very important because just like they said, you know, if I get hospitalized tomorrow, now everybody knows me down there, but if I get hospitalized in a bigger hospital, say Columbus, then I'll love to tell them anything, you know, because, you know, I just don't know. And, and it's very important that they talk to somebody else besides me. Great. And I think yeah, that this idea of a medical passport, um, as they call, as um, Dr. Perkins calls it, is a really good ex um, opportunity for people that don't have intellectual disabilities to sort of organize their medical history, have it in a place so that there, if there is an emergency, that people know where to access it. And um, it, it can, I think, um, allow access to better care much more rapidly than might otherwise occur. You know, I agree with that 100%. The thing I look at, though, if the patient, I put myself in that, if I'm put in the hospital, you know, I, I may deal with one nurse, and then an hour later somebody from X-ray might come get me and really? take me down to X-ray or wherever, and I think some sort of a, of a, a bracelet or band or something needs to follow the patient so everybody's on the same page. I think that would help out immensely. I love that idea. In the yeah, I do too. And in the discussion at this um, advisory council, I think there is the recognition of the challenges that um, people are faced in an emergency room hospitalization and that there is some effort, I'm hoping, that will be the outcome of this plan to um, create environments that are friendlier to the patient um, that may need some special adaptations at the time of admissions. And I love the yeah. Rush, um, um, the Rush Hospital in Chicago. They had buddies. They um, assigned a buddy to the person, um, and they had a, a, a protocol that had to be followed um, in terms of making sure that um, people were aware that the, pre the person presenting had some um, challenges that needed to be acknowledged so that uh, and integrated into care planning. 
Okay, wonderful. Well, I, I want to um, touch base and Catherine and Mary and just kind of see how you guys are doing for time because I know we had talked about an hour and we've been on an hour and 15 and we can talk up till 2 and I know and I'm, I'm game to do that because you guys are just filled with great information. Same with you, Rick. So, but I want to be um, conscious of time and just see where people are sitting um, with things. So, Catherine, I'm how is fine. your schedule <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm fine. I can go as, as oh. long or short as anybody else wants to. Okay. And, Mary, how about you? I have to depart at 1230. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll be done by then because we can only talk two hours anyways. And, Rick, how about your schedule? Um, Louie, I'm going to have to depart here in just a minute. I would I would like to say one more thing. Um, I don't know if your guests are aware of it, but, you know, I do a, I try to do a video uh, every day about my uh, EOAD and, and the struggles I go through on the good days and bad days, and I post them on memory people. And, and they've helped, just like they was talking, they've helped out immensely because it shows a patient. I mean, it shows me on my good days and bad days. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, that reaches out to a lot of people also. And I just want to take this time to thank you, Lori, for uh, coming up with this radio show and having the amount of guests that you have on there. And, and today's show was ex- excellent. And uh, I appreciate inviting me again. And uh, I, it, was a, it was a joy talking to your guests. Okay, Rick, before you depart, I just wanted to let you know that that same website in Australia, fightdementia.org, AU. Um, they have uh, a really rich um, l- link to some early onset dementia, and I, I've been amazed at um, the stories, very like your stories, people sharing. Um, I would encourage you to take a trip to Australia on the web, on the internet, and look at what they have. They every quarter they release uh, something called Hope. It's a magazine. Um, for early onset, and um, I have just found it very informative, um, very encouraging, and um, I, I think that there are many people that would admire the efforts that you're making on behalf of people with early onset. So reach out to the Australian folks. They are very responsive. I will, I will certainly do that, and thank you for the information. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, have bye-bye. a great weekend, Rick. You too. Bye-bye. So I'll stay on to about 10 more minutes, and then I'm going to have to go. Okay. Well, then let's get on to um, a couple more questions with you, Mary. Can you give us some examples of um, challenges of obtaining the diagnosis and maybe some screening tools that might help avoid um, and kind of cut to the chase for people to be able to, to get proper diagnosis? Well, the challenges for us were my brother had a host of um, medical issues occurring simultaneously. Um, So he lost the ability to walk in about 2006, and it was due to an infection um, in his spine, um, which was related to a surgical procedure. And so for us, we couldn't tease out what what we were facing um, and and unfortunately for us, in the process of um, trying to figure out why he wasn't walking, we had met um, a neurologist that we weren't familiar with because Bill was here in Maine rather than at his home in New York where he lived in a group home. So 
And there was a very quick leap to the conclusion that he had dementia Alzheimer's type without really knowing my brother Bill. And that was the first reference to dementia. And that was, I think, in 2005 or early 2006. Um, and I think that the, I think a lot of it was based on the fact that he had Down syndrome and he was in his late 40s rather than any other um, sound um, evaluation of what was going on. So I would encourage people to insist that um, their loved ones be given the opportunity to go through the same kind of screenings that um, people in the general population would in terms of um, a blood assessments, looking at um, other all health factors that could be taken into consideration in, in terms of making the disease, the diagnosis. Um, I think that in Bill's case, we did have a history of um, a CAT scan that in, in 1997 showed up some atrophy, and it was very hard to know whether that was due to Down syndrome in particular, or was it an indicator of the disease process way back when? And I think as the general population is um, given the opportunity to look at biomarkers and imaging and um, all kinds of other screening tools, those same kinds of screening tools need to be applied to people with intellectual disabilities. I think the, the tools that become um, more challenging are the tools related to the mental status. And again, that's why I would reinforce the need to, you know, collect some baseline data because that will allow some physicians to look at the person and make the comparison to um, how the person is functioning in general. And I do think that there are, um, Dr. Ira Lott at the University of um, California in Irvine, um, he uses some tools that I can um, make available to your website as well. But um, our national task group has looked at, um, it's called, uh, it's a screening and we have uh, modified it, but there is a screening tool, and it's called the um, – I'm, I'm struggling here to recall the name myself here. It's um, the Intellectual Disabilities um, – Dementia Screening Questionnaire for Individuals with Intellectual Disabilities. And we have modified that tool um, for, for easier use, and we're, we're about to look for um, groups of people that might um, – be willing to partake in a study of how effective that is in identifying people with intellectual disabilities. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, I do know that. But I think that we need to err on the side of um, making sure we've had established a differential diagnosis before concluding that the individual does indeed have um, um, a form of dementia. And um, I can't stress enough the, the baseline as, as um, a simple tool for people to use over time. Great. And I also wanted to throw another question your way because I forgot your, your Eastern time. So when you said 1230, I'm like, oh, not a problem because I'm right. <laughs> right. Um, I want to make sure that we, we get you covered here. Um, can you share with us some of your thoughts on quality of life um, issues, you know, as we age in place and, and safe transitions for people um, mm -hmm. that are intellectually um, disabled. Can you uh, talk to that point, please? Yeah, I think that the most profound concern that I had was um, the willingness to look at the whole person um, look at Bill and re res be respectful of the very rich life that he had before and always mm -hmm. 
um, draw upon um, that as um, part of what he needed to be um, continually exposed to, um, to keep those connections that um, he previously had. Um, and I think that when one is forced to make a transition in um, care, that it's so important for the new caregivers to understand those pieces of um, the, the person's life. And I think, Catherine, yesterday we were talking about um, the best friend approach to caregiving. And mm -hmm. for me, that was a model of what I needed to be doing to facilitate an, um, an attachment to Bill um, when he had to make a move to a, a new group home. Um, or, and that was a very difficult time for him, and I, I, I think that it contributed to um, accelerating the end of his life um, because he was not in um, the setting that he was familiar with. And I think that we need to look at these uh, individuals as even with their changes in cognition, that they are spiritual beings and I think be um, providing a great deal of respect and, and comfort and um, love and a sense of attachment um, to the very end. Um, my, my concern, too, was about um, preparing, ha helping the staff understand the process of end of life. And um, our choice would have been for Bill to um, have um, had the opportunity to make his transition to the other side um, at his group home, but he was hospitalized. But I think that as we look at options for end-of-life care, I think they need to be very sensitive to what's the least invasive, um, and families need to understand that when they're in the um, system for care for people with intellectual disabilities that sometimes you don't always have control over some of those decisions at the end of life. So you, people need to become very informed about what their um, their rights are as family members and advocates and um, guardians for their loved ones, so that they can ensure that the end of life is um, is unfolds the way in which they had envisioned it for the their their family member. Um, so I also think that um, for folks in a group home setting or uh, a residential facility, if hospice is going to be involved, that the caregivers in the group home need to be thoroughly supported through the hospice process, um, especially if this is their first um, experience with somebody dying at home. Um, and I do know that I witnessed that with my at my brother's group home when another um, resident was dying and how difficult it was for the staff to feel supported rather than abandoned in the process. So I think if that's the option that's going to be exercised, that it needs to be um, supported and um, throughout um, the whole process to the end of life. Um, I, I would encourage people to, for us, my brother's celebration at the end of his life was Oh, was so rewarding and um, so comforting, um, and uh, we made sure that my brother's um, mates from the group home were very much included in the process at the end of his life when we had our um, vi visiting hours at the funeral home. Um, it was uh, just a really touching experience from everybody getting a boutonniere, um, including my brother, for his last dance. Um, to um, 
just a general inclusion of the community at large. And um, we grew up in a very small town, so my brother was very embraced by that community, um, even at um, to the end of his life. Um, so I think it's really important to know that people with intellectual disabilities can add add so much to our lives and in the process of life and in the process of dying need to be acknowledged um, in a very respectful and a very spiritual manner um, because um, that's the right thing to do. I, I so much agree with you. Are there um, certain family support systems that you would recommend for them? And then I'll, I'll let you go because I know you need to get running. But Well, you know, it's funny that um, we're, we continue to try to create those kinds of opportunities. Um, there is um, a sibling network out there called um, SibNet, which one can um, sign up for and easily receive, be in touch with people across the country. Um, there is something called the Sibling Leadership Network that I found after um, the fact that um, does provide information. Um, and as a result of this, um, I think you're going to find as people age and parents age, more and more siblings find themselves as um, the primary um, caregivers or guardians for their siblings. So I think the the ability for siblings to network over time is a really important piece of that. And I think that there is a growing awareness of um, the importance of connecting people in order to be supportive um, as, as I speak. Um, I think lots of conferences nationally are beginning to acknowledge the importance of um, siblings in the process of care as the parents age, face their own health care issues, and perhaps die, um, that, that siblings are more engaged in the process of um, advocacy and caregiving for their, their siblings that um, are living longer and have an increased likelihood of developing this disease. So I think that um, those are the two that I would mention. I would really encourage people to um, reach out to the national associations that, um, and for Down syndrome in particular, that's the one I'm most connected to, is and remind them that um, aging individuals need to be on their radar screen um, and they need to be included in um, all their national websites and helpful links for families um, made available. Um, and that's been something that I've continued to work on over time, and um, I'm hopeful that that will happen so that people can connect with one another. I will tell you that in the disease process, I did feel exceptionally isolated um, because if you went to an Alzheimer's group, you, there wasn't anybody to relate to, um, and they couldn't relate to my situation with Bill. And I did reach out, and pers I was persistent, and um, I was um, connected with a family um, that lived in the Adirondacks, and, and I'm in Maine, and that family was very supportive to me in the process. And I think that creating those kinds of links for those of us that, um, you know, have a sort of a we're in the in the down, the dementia community, but um, present with a host of um, other challenges. Um, I think that that's really important to recognize, and I'm hopeful that the Alzheimer's Association, um, who has um, recently acknowledged the, the document produced by the uh, National Task Group and has um, posted it on their website, I'm really hopeful that with the help of um, some 
some researchers and um, the Congresswoman McMorris Rogers, uh, who's uh, the head of the Down Syndrome Congressional Caucus, that we will get um, be noted on websites like um, the Alzheimer's Association, so that we can go and they w there will be a link to something related to early onset that's related to Down syndrome, that's related to family supports, et cetera. So. That's my dream, that people can find information easily, connect with one another easily, um, and not so feel so alone in the process. And um, that's begun to happen, and it's a slow process, but I know that it will benefit many, many families, um, many, many caregivers in group homes and other shared living um, arrangements, and most of all, the individuals with the diagnosis. So um, that's my hope for the for what will lie ahead. Well, I think that's wonderful. Mary, how can people get a hold of you? I want to give them your contact information before you hop off the line here. It is just very simply Mary Hogan, all one word, at Comcast.net. Okay, so that's M-A-R-Y-H-O-G-A-N at Comcast, C-O-M as in Mary, C-A-S. Net. Well, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time today. I am just feel privileged and honored to to get to know you here, and you're you're doing such wonderful work. I very much appreciate it. I will post um, all your contact information and things on the blog. I'll send you that link so you can go Great. ahead and share that out with others as well. But thank you so much. And Catherine, if you can stay on the line, we'll continue our conversation here sure. if you're okay with that. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you very much, both of you. I, it, it was an honor for me to be, have been in, um, involved in today's um, radio show. So, see you, and I'll talk again to you, I, both of you. Catherine, I know I'll talk to you. Lori, I look forward <laughs> to talking to you in the future. Okay, bye -bye. sounds great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, you guys are just so packed with information. I just, I absolutely adore it. It's just wonderful. Um, Catherine, <laughs> one of the things I know you had on your list was talking about, you know, how to intervene with this disease on a non-drug-related uh, or non-pharmacology-related um, avenue. Can you give us some examples of, of why you feel that way and, and what are some approaches that people can do without having necessarily to go to the drugs first? Yeah, I just think that's so important. And I think Rick touched on it, too, in talking about, you know, that he's on – you know, he's a young man, and he's on, I think he said, eight or nine medica different medications mm -hmm. now. And I think we're very quick, and it relates back to not only the, the behavioral piece, but the sort of dignity and quality of life issues that you discussed with Mary. And, and I just think we need to really take a step back from trying to treat any of the behaviors or things that we see reaching for that pill bottle too quickly. I see so many families who the person they're caring for is on eight, nine, I mean, that's not a whole lot in the context of this population. You know, people bring me mm -hmm. two boxes of medications. And it's uh -huh. so, I think, appealing, and families look to their doctors for advice, and when they're faced with a behavior that's difficult for them to deal with at home, the first thing they do is call the doctor, and then the doctor who in all honesty, is not necessarily trained or educated in sort of behavioral, non-pharmaceutical behavioral interventions, writes a prescription. And many times mm -hmm. those drugs 
not only um, don't help with the behavior but can make it worse. And I think we really need to take a step back and start trying to better understand how an individual with dementia perceives their environment. Um, mm -hmm. How do we assess pain in someone who can't verbally communicate where they're maybe having, you know, physical discomfort? We need to do all of those all of those things. The, the number of people for whom uh, a pharmaceutical intervention for a behavioral issue um, is necessary is really very, very tiny. And I have talked to, to um, staff members here in Maine, um, and there's changing, there's another facility in the state that's looking to develop a unit like this, but the sort of historical font of all um, information on this has been at Maine Medical Center, specifically their unit called P6, which is their geropsych unit. And I've talked to their staff members, and they they usually um, are where people who have very, very difficult intractable behavioral issues um, get placed and go to be stabilized and so forth. And many times the underlying cause of those behaviors is something that can really be be treated non-pharmacologically if we just understand how the person is perceiving their world, the fact that, and there's been research on this, that people with dementia um, have difficulty reading facial expressions, and so they perceive a threat in what may be a non-threatening situation, but the way their mind, because of the disease process, process processes things, they perceive threats when none appear. So you see some of that angry and agitated behavior. People with dementia, their threshold for stressful situations, even situations that may just involve a lot of noise, um, becomes very, very limited. And reaching for the for the pill bottle, although may be quick, oftentimes at best masks an underlying condition that needs to, to be paid attention to, and at worst makes the problem even worse. And every time you add a new medication to someone, you know, Rick's on eight medications, every time you add a new medication to that, you're running the risk of increased side effects. A lot of medications have have side effects such as gastric problems and so forth. Well, if someone can't verbally communicate that they've just started taking this new drug and they're having heartburn or, or pain in their stomach or whatever, is that another new behavior? Do we now start adding another drug <clears throat> to treat that because we just think that's a behavioral issue as opposed to understanding that there could be some other medical condition underlying it? Um, you know, I think we, we tend to over-medicate, and it, it's an issue in the elderly in general, over-medication I think is a huge issue. Um, so I think we really need to to do a much better job, and it, it keeps coming back to me about education and awareness for everyone who's involved in the care for someone with with dementia. That 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 medication should be a last resort. It shouldn't be the first thing that we reach for uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I totally agree. I, I totally agree. And I know that there's been periods of time. You know, my mom's been battling this memory problem thing for 30 years, but. Uh, and she wasn't formally diagnosed until the mid-90s. But um, there were several times over the process where they just had to take her off everything to get a baseline because you, you, know, you don't know what's doing what to what at, at all anymore. You know, it, it gets very, very complicated and all the, you know, contraindications and, you know, how things work together or don't work so well together. And it's right. really a, a trial and error. And I think if we can 
truly shifts people's perceptions on you know what you were talking on what a behavior is that it really isn't a behavior it's a reaction and exactly. you know we we all react and not everybody likes our reactions but it's still That's our right. choice and, and it's still it still makes us who we are and so is it who they are and have always been or is there really something wrong and you know is it inappropriate or is it right. just that we don't like it or that it makes us feel uncomfortable and um, you know how do we approach that? So I think if we start looking at things and and can shift things um, kind of from a, a mental aspect in terms of what's what, uh, to me that'll just be massively huge. And not that we don't need some some um, drugs at some times and some medications, but I, I think I think we have to you know start with the basics. <laughs> you know, um instead of just jumping the gun because it. It gets complicated really, really quickly, and um, you know it can do so many things to our system that we we have no idea that it's even doing. Well, you're yeah, absolutely some, right. I chuckle at you saying that because I, I, it makes me think. I oftentimes have family members who will say to me, "My mother's so demanding," you know, she wants everything right now, and they're they're attributing that to the disease process. And I'll say to them, "Well, what was your mother's personality before?" And they'll sort of stop, and there'll be this pause, and they'll say, oh, she was always really very demanding. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if that's her personality, that's not gonna, that isn't going to change in the course of the illness. You know, she is who she is, and, you know, there's no medication we're going to be able to give her that, that, you know, well, I suppose we could give her a medication and we could, you know, sort of drug her into submission, her but up. that's not what we want to do. Um, and so understanding someone's previous personality isn't going to change. Um, you know, is, if we see a behavior, is it caused by pain, which we can and should be treating? Is it depression? You know, a large percentage of people who have um, Alzheimer's disease or a related dementia also have depression. That's perfectly understandable. We can treat depression. Depression can be treated. Um, you know, if we treat the depression, and that is a pharmaceutical intervention, but if we treat the depression, then do we see, you know, maybe some of the apathy and the things that are bothersome to families, you know, go away with that? We need to look at people as, in a holistic way. We need to look at the whole picture. And I think along with medications, one of the other things that I talk with families about a lot, because people are on so many medications, is that every time the doctor gives a new medication to someone, we really need to be asking physicians, um, you know, what's the, what's the goal of this treatment? You know, there are a lot of people out there who are in the very late stages of Alzheimer's disease who are still taking cholesterol-lowering medications, who are taking a host of drugs in addition to, you know, the ones they may be taking for their dementia. Can we, um, you know, can some of those drugs be pulled away from them because they're not necessary at that point in life, um, especially if they may be causing side effects that are minimizing the person's quality of life. And so we, I think we need to look at everything, every medication we give, whether it's for a medical condition or to treat what may be a, a, a quote, behavioral, and I love your, the choice of your word, a reaction, as opposed to mm -hmm. a behavior. Um, you know, what's the goal of that therapy? Um, and other other ways, you know, we can deal with this problem instead of instead of reaching for that that pill bottle. Exactly, exactly. Now I know Bill is on the line, and he's asking if anyone is talking about diets and the effect on Alzheimer's or toxins 
uh, or neurotoxic um, things. Have you? Uh, you want to make a comment on any of that? Do you have any sure. beliefs behind that? Okay. Sure. You know there. There has been, over the years, we know a lot more about what doesn't cause Alzheimer's disease specifically than we do about what does cause it. When my father was first diagnosed, um, there was this theory that it was the aluminum in your pots and pans that was leaching out and getting into your brain. We now know that's not true. In more recent years, it's the, it's the mercury in your fillings that's you know, leaching out. We know that is not the case now. Um, so we know more about what isn't the case than what is. Several years ago, there were a lot of studies published that if you lived a healthy, you know, life and you diet and you exercise and you stimulate your brain with puzzles and Sudoku and all of those sorts of things and remain socially involved and engaged, um, that that can help prevent Alzheimer's. And and there was a lot of, of actually very negative reaction to that from people who were living with Alzheimer's at the time because many of them had lived very healthy lifestyles and still developed the disease and somehow felt that they were being, um, you know, punished or pointed at as if maybe they hadn't done the right things and that was why they developed the disease. Um, and so there was some backtracking of that. We do know that whatever you do for your heart is good for your brain. Your brain is a very highly vascularized organ, meaning lots of blood vessels. And so whatever you do for your heart to keep your heart healthy is going to be good for your brain. So certainly a good diet and getting exercise and remaining socially involved and active, all of those things can only help your brain. Um, you know, in regards to toxins, who knows? Maybe someday we will find out it's something, it's some environmental toxin that has causing these problems. We know that people who have, um, uh, who have had a history of some sort of, um, of a concussion or something, some sort of a, a brain injury. Not, and I don't mean a brain injury in the sense of having a car accident and, you know, really having a traumatic brain injury, although that can certainly play into it. But, for instance, football players now. We're seeing a lot more in the news about football players being more at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Certainly boxers over the years, we, we've known, you know, quote, dementia pugilistica, um, is as a result of those repeated head traumas, um, you know, the people who have those sorts of things have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. And I think that's going to become a big issue in the coming years. And we're starting to see it now. <clears throat> we're starting to see more Vietnam veterans who maybe mm -hmm. had some sort of concussive, um, you know, injury um, to, their, to their brain uh, because of bombs and so forth, certainly true in World War II victims. And and I read something very interestingly recently that this is going to be a much larger problem in, in future years because of the use of um, IEDs in Iran, in Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth that we're seeing, that we've seen. Um, and I'm sensitive to that because my son's an, uh, a veteran of the Iraq War and the Army 101st Airborne Infantry. And we're going to see a lot more down the road of people who, who perhaps that plays a factor in their developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, so I think the bottom line for people is whatever you can do that's good for your heart is, is absolutely going to be good for your brain. Um, there's, I think to some extent there's, um, you know, there was, this, there was the issue of education, that people with a higher education don't develop Alzheimer's disease as much. And I think what we have found because of that is, is not so much that. They may have a higher... Um, capacity 
um, to sort of cope in the earlier stages so it doesn't show up quite as much. Um, you know, the impairments don't show up uh, quite as obviously. Well, the, expectations, the expectations are different. And the um, expectations are different. So, yeah. um, you know, again, I think research is, is a wonderful thing into all of all of these things, and maybe someday we're going to have, you know, absolutely the, the – the definitive answer to what causes it and what do we need to avoid and what should we be doing, I think we're still a long uh, way away from that other than just realizing that a healthy lifestyle is a good thing to do just for general purposes. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. Um, now, you also wanted to, you know, really hit home that the person is still there. And so yeah. I'll let you go ahead and talk to that because I, I feel really strongly on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Mary sort of talked about you asked her, you know, about for her, you know, about what represents quality of life. And and I think that's a hugely important um, piece of it. And one that I see, it, it, it's more benign neglect as opposed to, to, you know, deliberate neglect. But I think, you know, looking at the person as, a, as continuing to be a whole person and being respectful, as Mary said, of the very rich life that that people have led and to maintain those connections is tremendously important. I have families who say to me, and it breaks my heart when I hear this. A lady said this to me just the other day in a class I was teaching. and said, you know, well, you know, my mother doesn't recognize me anymore, and and she's not really my mom anymore, and, you know, and I said to her, you know, she is still your mom, and yes, it's true, she may not recognize you, but I have to believe that on some level she absolutely knows who you are. She may not be able to verbalize or articulate, that's my daughter, Sally, or whatever Mm -hmm. her name might be, but she still knows you, and I think... You know, to me, the underlying thing is that we need to treat people like we want to be treated ourselves, whether that's someone with dementia or any other any other illness at all, and, and be respectful that people have had rich lives and honor those lives and, and try to help people maintain those lives as, as soon as, po- as long as possible um, and support them in doing that. And, and, yeah, you know, maybe dad's changed, dad maybe does things differently than he used to do. I had a, heard a son who once said um, whose mother was always very beautifully and immaculately dressed and turned out and so forth. And he and he said, "Yep." He says, "Mom may now, um, you know, put her bra on over her clothes, but that's that's just who Mom is now, and I still love her." And I think you know, realizing that the person is still there um, is so is so important, not just for the person, but for the for the caregiver, the family member as well. And, and you may have to adopt different ways of trying to reach them and interact with them and so forth. But that person is still there. And they're there till the very end. We know that the one thing someone never, ever loses up until the point they draw their very last breath is the ability to feel emotion. And I think we all have an obligation, whether we're family caregivers or professional caregivers, um, to honor that and make their emotional experiences as positive as we possibly, possibly can. Um, I think it becomes very easy, particularly in facility settings, to to not really um, appreciate who people are. And there are lots of reasons for that, and I'm not criticizing facilities. I think 
they have a tremendously difficult job, and I know the people that go into that line of work, they don't go into it for the money. They go into it because they have a passion for that kind of work. Um, but it becomes very difficult to, to honor who that person was and still is to this day. And I just think that that's so important. You know, the people say the person I know is gone, and I think, well, this is just the new normal. Um, that person still remains, and we need to try and honor who that person is um, up until they draw their very last breath. Oh, I, I so agree with that. I, I shared this story, I think, a, a couple of shows ago, but I'll share it again just because I think it's so important. But my daughter is an activities uh, coordinator at an assisted living for memory loss. And one of the residents there, um, you know, got sick and was basically, you know, in a coma. And she had a stroke, and they told the family, the physicians and, and uh, the medical staff told the family um, at the hospital that, you know, she can't communicate and, you know, so there's there's really no point in, in trying. You know, she's not going to respond. She's not going to do anything. My daughter came home that night just crying, and she's like, oh, she's just, she's so precious to me. She's kind of like my mentor grandma, you know, because she could communicate more with her than she could my my mom. Um, because my mom's disease had progressed further. And um, she was going to go down to the hospital, and she's like, oh, I just don't, I don't want to go, but I know I need to go. And I just grabbed her, and I said, honey, I said, don't listen to those doctors. Don't you ever let anyone tell you that somebody cannot hear or feel what it is you're saying. I said, I want you, you to go down to the hospital. I want you to grab her hand, and I want you to tell her how important she was in your life. And I said, I don't care who's around or what's happening, but you need to do that for you and you need to do that for her. And she said, but she can't respond. You know, she's not. And I said, watch. I said, if yep. you watch closely, you will see a sign. I promise you. I said, so she she goes down, she comes back, and she, she opens up the door and she's like, Mom, Mom. You know, she comes running in. She's like, you're not going to believe it. I said, what happened? She said, I got down there. And she said the family was all, you know, everybody was so sad and said, well, you know, you can go ahead and say your goodbyes, but, you know, she's not responding. She doesn't know we're here, blah, 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 you know, all the typical things that people are told. And so Danielle went and grabbed her hand. And she started talking to her about all their special times together and how important she was in her life. And she said the woman opened up her eyes, got a smile on her face, and gave her a high five. Oh, and that was in front of all the family, and I, and she's like, "Can you believe it? Can you believe it?" And I said, "Yes, I can." And I said, "One of the things that happens repeatedly, and it drives me bananas, is that people give up the hope of connection, and they are robbed of that because they are told that the connection is gone." And the connection is never, ever gone. The response may be different, and it might be minute compared to what it once was, and other times it's not, but don't give up. You know, say what you have to say, let them know the connection, and watch for the response. Because it's, you know, it's, that it's is, so... That's, that's oh, go ahead. such a beautiful story, and I absolutely, you know, love that. And... And I have to say, I actually got a little tear in the corner of my eye because, you know, those are the stories that, that we need to be telling people about. I tell in some of my workshops people about my father who was, at the point this occurred, he was probably about eight years into the disease, maybe even nine years he died 
after 10 years. And I remember my mom and I, and you would never have thought that he was paying, that not only was he paying attention to anything that was being said, but that he could um, understand, you know, what the conversation was because he just, mm-hmm. you know, he had lost that aspect and the ability to verbalize. And my, I was, go, I was under, going through a divorce at the time, and my mother and I were talking about this, and he was just kind of wandering aimlessly around in the dining room when, you know, we were discussing this, my mother and I standing there. And suddenly he hadn't uttered a word in many years at this point. And all of a sudden he walked over to me and he gave me a hug and he looked at me and he said, it's okay. And, you know, you would never, ever have thought that not only, that he wasn't paying attention, he certainly didn't appear to be paying attention, and certainly that he could have understood what it was, but I knew he understood. He, You know, he gave me that fatherly hug. You know, my dad Mm -hmm. was still there and he understood on some level. He maybe couldn't have, have articulated what it was we were talking about, but he knew. And I think that's a wonderful, if any of your listeners um, have the opportunity, if you and you maybe have seen this yourself, um, but if you go online and Google Memory Bridge, Naomi File has oh, yeah. a video clip on there of Naomi File with a lady named Gladys Wilson. And yep. um, Gladys has been non-communicative for a very long time. She's in the very advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. And it's a short clip. It runs three or four minutes of Naomi interacting with this woman. And what happens at the end of it is Naomi singing um, a hymn with her. Um, or Actually, I think it's, you know, whatever, I don't know the proper name, but he's got the whole world in his hands. And Naomi yep. starts singing this with her. And all of a sudden, Gladys Wilson starts to sing with her. This is a lady who hasn't spoken in years, who for all intents to the casual observer um, doesn't comprehend anything that's going on around her. Um, that some people would say, you know, she's gone. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't understand anything that's happening anymore. And she starts to sing with her. You know, the moral of the story is Gladys was still there. We just had to think a little bit out of the box as to how to reach her. And and I think that's true of all people. Your, the story of your daughter certainly illustrates that, that people can be reached, and we should never, ever give up in trying to reach to reach that person because it can be done. Definitely. Now we're we're wrapping up. I can't believe we've been yapping for two hours here. I, I think um, we could all talk about this for days. <laughs> I know, I know. But I want to make sure that that you're able to give our audience your contact information, Catherine. How did they Absolutely. get a hold of you? Um, they can either reach me through my website, which is www.dementiacarestrategies.com. So www.dementiacarestrategies.com, or they can email me at um, dementiacare at gwi.net. So they can either go to the website, there's a contact me box on the website, they can send me email that way, or just email me directly at dementiacare at gwi.net. gwi.net, okay. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, you have just found... an amazing, amazing um, guest today and have uh, filled us with lots of wonderful information. So I so appreciate all of your time here today. I do Thank want you for to, having us. Oh, great. I do want to just wrap up um, the show and let people know of upcoming shows here. On the 15th, we are going to be talking about genetics and Alzheimer's disease and the evolving landscape. And then on the 22nd, I'm going to have Charles um, 
Robertson on, and he is with Damkin Fitness, and he's actually going to give a free uh, free brain fitness program away on that show. On the 26th, we're going to have Rick Roman and Gina Potoff on, and they have done this beautiful, beautiful song called Hiding in the Rain. And uh, then we're also going to have on that show a good friend of mine, Jake. Danny Jason, who is the daughter of um, the journey with Alzheimer's disease with her parents. And then on April 3rd, we're going to have Steve on, and he actually has the disease. And his title of his program is, So I Was Right, There Was a Problem with My Memory. Um, So we've got lots of good programming coming up. We've got some authors. In fact, Naomi uh, File is actually going to be on the show here April 6th. And um, I'm very excited to see her. She's coming to Minnesota to celebrate her 80th birthday and 30 years in the business um, with her validation program. So that'll be a lot of a lot of fun to see her. So again, thank uh, I, I thank everybody for being part of the show today. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. I'd love to talk to you. Um, maybe you are the next one to have a story to to tell us and share with the world. So thank you again so much, Catherine, for being on the show today. I want to thank again Rick and Mary as well for being with us. Have a blessed weekend. Bye now. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond, I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.